good to be with you, church. For the, for the past year, as a church, we've been studying the book of Ephesians, and we've just finished the six-week series on addressing sexual sins that Paul addresses in Ephesians chapter 5. Now, we're not done with Ephesians chapter 5, and so we're just going to jump right back into it and continue, but before we do so, let's take this opportunity to do a quick recap on the entire book of Ephesians. Well, as we talked about before, the book of Ephesians, very simply put, can be divided up into two major sections, Ephesians 1 through 3 and Ephesians 4 through 6. Ephesians 1 through 3 describes everything that God has done in order to make us his people. Not the things that we've done to make ourselves his, that would be impossible, but everything that God has done in order to make us his. What Paul is teaching us is that God acted first. He loved us first. And then starting in chapter 4 throughout the rest of the book, there's a shift. There's a shift. And in this shift, what we see is that Ephesians chapters 4 through 6 now is describing everything that we need to do as God's church. Everything that we're called to do and obey in light of everything that God has done. Paul calls us to live in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. And so starting in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul gives us lots of different instructions on covering lots of different things, including uh, the call to obey God in the area of our sexuality in chapter 5. But then he doesn't stop there. He's going to keep going. He's going to address our marriages. And then starting in chapter 6, he's going to address our parenting and workplace relationships. And, and just in case we think that life, this Christian life, is just only about dealing with domestic kinds of issues and domestic relationships, he's going to conclude the letter to the church at Ephesus by reminding us that there is a cosmic warfare going on. That this life isn't simply about dealing with the seen, but seeing the unseen. The unseen warfare that's going on every day. And so he's going to give us final instructions on how to put on the full armor of God so that we might get in the fight. How do you put on this full armor of God so that we might be on mission? And so that's Ephesians 4 through 6. If you think about it, it can be overwhelming. If you just kind of step back and look at all the things that God's calling you to obey, it can be overwhelming, right? You could think, there's just no way, right? God, is, there's just no way that I'm going to be able to obey all of these things. How in the world am I going to be able to obey everything that you're calling me to obey? How in the world am I going to be able to fight day after day, fight week after week and for the rest of my life, these sins that have plagued me as far back as I can remember. And not only that, but on top of that, to be repenting of those sins and having these sins be replaced by the fruit of goodness and righteousness and truth. How in the world, God? How do we obey all these things? Well, Paul is all too familiar with these feelings. Just go read Romans chapter 7. 
And so right in the middle of this Ephesians 4 through 6 section of instructions, all the things we need to obey, after telling us all kinds of things to obey, and before he continues to keep telling us more things to obey, he's going to hit the pause button, as it were, and he's going to tell us how, how we're going to be able to obey. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, he tells us how. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. But be filled with the Spirit. So how do we do it? How do we fight against all the sins that plague us? How do we live in obedience to all the things that God's calling us to obey? Well, we do it by being filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the key. And if being filled with the Holy Spirit is the key, then we have to ask three questions. And the three questions are, number one, well, who is this Holy Spirit and why is he so important? Who is he and why is he so important? And number two, what is it to be filled with the Holy Spirit, right? What is it to be filled with the Holy Spirit? And number three, how do we be filled with the Holy Spirit? How? Let's answer the first question. Who is he? Who is this Holy Spirit and why is he so important? What we need to do in answering this question is to do a quick theology lesson. Not an exhaustive theology lesson, but a quick theology lesson on the Trinity. And I think it's important for us to do so because when it comes to talking about the Holy Spirit, sadly, there's just so much confusion. We just really don't know. And there's even abuse happening in churches about who the Holy Spirit is and and what he does. And so let's look at the definition of Trinity together. The doctrine of the Trinity means that there's only one God, that there's one God who eternally exists in three persons, right? There's one God who eternally exists as three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Stated differently, God is one in essence and three in persons. There are three crucial truths that we need to know about the Trinity, Number one, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are distinct persons. Number two, each person is fully God. And number three, there is only one God. Okay, let's go through these quickly. Number one, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are distinct persons. I think the mistake we make sometimes as, as a church, as God's people, is that we have a, we, we, we treat and and think of God the Father as a person, as a distinct person, and we think of God the Son as a distinct person and treat him like a person. That's separate from God the Father, right? But when it comes to the Holy Spirit, we often think of him as as an it, as, as a force, as some power, just some energy, right? And the way that we refer to him often, we, we tie an it to it. But the Holy Spirit is not an it, he's a he. When we look at the scriptures, we see that the Holy Spirit teaches. He teaches, a person teaches. He counsels, he's a counselor, he's a person. He feels, the Bible says he can be grieved. He's a person, not an it. And when it comes to these three distinct persons, what we also need to see is that they coexist at the same time. It's not one person that plays different roles. It's not as though God the Father transforms himself into God the Son, and then later God the Son transforms himself into God the Holy Spirit. That's actually a heresy called modalism. 
What the Bible teaches us is that these distinct three persons, they coexist at the same time. The passage I would point to is when Jesus was baptized. Remember, when Jesus was baptized, it's called the triadic passage. It's a passage of scriptures where you look at it and you see all three distinct persons of the Godhead of Trinity all there working at the same time. And so what do we see? Jesus, God the Son, is being baptized, right? And what do you hear from heaven? You hear from heaven, the Father speaking. This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And at the same time, who do you also see? The person of the Holy Spirit descending upon Jesus as a dove. Number two, second crucial truth. Each person is fully God. It's not as though each person is a third God and they come together to make up a full God. Each person is fully God and equally God and equally God. The the verse that I would point to to bring out these second and third crucial truths is Matthew 28, verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So notice, Jesus is speaking here, and three persons are mentioned, right? But Jesus doesn't say, baptizing them in the names, plural. He doesn't say, baptizing them in the names of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but baptizing them in the singular name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, what is Jesus doing here? By binding the three in one, he's communicating two things. He's communicating first the oneness of God, right? There are not three different names, it's one name. And he's also communicating the equal claim to deity in the personhood of God, right? Each person has an equal claim to that singular name, right? And so both, both the oneness of God The equality that exists in the persons is being communicated. And so when we look at the scriptures, the Bible is not unclear when it comes to describing the Trinity to us. It's very clear, but still at the same time, logically, this is very hard for us to comprehend and understand. How can three be one and how can one be three? But it ought to at least reveal to us at the very least one thing. And that one thing is that God is not like us. He's not like us. He's gracious to us and he reveals himself so that we might come to know him. But he is not so finite that we can fully comprehend and understand him with our human minds. And that's why heaven is eternal. Do you know that? Why is heaven eternal? Why is it forever? Because it's going to take forever for God to show us himself. It's going to take an eternity for us to get to know who God is. And so, who is the Holy Spirit? He's God. Why is he so important? Because he's God. But let's get more specific. Here's another reason why the Holy Spirit is so important. John Owen, he's an important theologian to the church back in the 1600s. He said this. He said that there are three eras in human history. Three eras in human history. There's the Old Testament era, there's the early New Testament era, and there's the church era, okay? And what he said was this, that the prominent person of the Trinity on display in the Old Testament was God the Father. 
And what he didn't mean by that is that he didn't mean that only God the Father was at work in the Old Testament, but that the prominent person of the Trinity that was on display in the Old Testament was God the Father, right? You read through the Old Testament, you see glimpses of Jesus, okay? But you don't see fully Jesus. You see glimpses of the Holy Spirit, but you don't yet see fully the Holy Spirit. In in this New Testament era, the prominent person of the Trinity that is on display to us is, of course, God the Son. And in the third era, the church era, which started in the book of Acts, which we are in today, which we will be in until Jesus comes back, the prominent person on display for us to see is God, the Holy Spirit. So what's happening here? What's happening here throughout human history? What is God doing here? Well, what's happening here is that ever since man sinned and rejected God back in Genesis chapter 3, God could no longer be near to us because he he was far off because of our sin and because of his holiness. And all throughout the Old Testament, when you read, you sense this distance, right? This chasm that exists between God and man. That's why people have this idea of the God of the Old Testament. Well, this God of the Old Testament, God the Father, he was working. What was he working on? He was working to bridge the gap, this chasm that exists between God and man. How? He was working all throughout the Old Testament in order that he might give us his son. That's what God the Father was doing all throughout the Old Testament. Pointing us to his son, reminding us of his son, that he was coming, the promised one was coming until he was finally given to us. And in Jesus, what do we see? In Jesus, what we see is that we no longer have a God who dwells far away from us, but in Jesus, we have a God who came near and dwelled among us, wrapped himself in human flesh, born into this world to dwell among us. And he went to the cross, died a horrific death, paid for our sins, gave us, credited us with all of his righteousness and made us a holy people. And for many of us, that's where our gospel description would end, right? That's for many of us, that's where our gospel description would stop, but that's stopping too soon. It's stopping too soon. Why did God the Father do what he did? And why did God the Son do everything that he did? Why did he go to the cross? Why did he credit us with righteousness? Why did he make us a holy people? He did it so that, God would no longer dwell far away from us and not even so that God would dwell among us, but so that God would dwell in us. That's the Holy Spirit. That's what he's doing all throughout human history. He's moving heaven and earth, literally heaven and earth to come closer and closer and closer and to bridge that great chasm that was brought on by our sin. God coming near until his very Holy Spirit can dwell in his people. And so, God did everything that he did. God the Father did everything that he did. God the Son did everything that he did so that we might know and experience a God who is more near and intimate to us than we could ever dream. And that's what happened to us, each of us, at the moment of our salvation. Did you guys know that? If you're sitting here and and you believe and trust in Jesus... At the moment of your salvation, God filled you with his Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is living inside of you. 
He's living inside of you. That happened to you at the moment of your salvation. It says that you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. That's what Ephesians 1.13 tells us. Jesus did everything that he did in order to prepare a proper dwelling place for God himself to dwell in us. And so who is this Holy Spirit? He's God. Why is he so important? Because in him, we see a God that is moving heaven and earth to draw closer and closer and closer to his people. Second question, what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? What does it mean? Let's look at the verse again, Ephesians 5.18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul gives us the command here to be filled with the Holy Spirit, but he does it in a peculiar way, right? He does it in a peculiar way. He does it by comparing and contrasting being filled with the Holy Spirit with being drunk on wine. Well, what's he doing? Well, first of all, the word drunk there that he uses in the Greek, it it means to be soaked. It means to be saturated. It means to be overflowing. And so what he's saying is, he's saying, don't be soaked with wine, but be soaked with the Holy Spirit. He's saying, don't be saturated with alcohol, but be saturated with God's Spirit. He's saying, don't be overflowing with wine, but be overflowing with the Holy Spirit. So he's comparing and contrasting here. He's showing us similarities and dissimilarities because he's saying, don't be. So what are some similarities? What are some dissimilarities? Let's look at the similarities first. First similarity is that when you're drunk or when you're filled with the Spirit, you end up doing something that you otherwise wouldn't have done on your own or you otherwise couldn't have done on your own, right? Some of us know this, right? When, when you get drunk, you go and possibly do something. Next day, you regret it. And because you were drunk, you did something that you otherwise wouldn't have done on your own. Or you do something that you otherwise couldn't have done on your own. Some people call alcohol liquid courage. Okay, you drink alcohol, and maybe if you're a guy, it gives you the courage to go and talk to that girl. If you're a girl, maybe it gives you the courage to flirt with that guy. It, it, it makes you do something that you otherwise couldn't have done on your own. And what Paul is saying is that being filled with the Spirit has similar ramifications. All throughout the Bible, you see ordinary people, flawed people, sinful people, and you see God filling them with this Holy Spirit, and they do something that they otherwise wouldn't have done. They do something that they otherwise couldn't have done on their own. You see God raising up a judge in the Old Testament, right? And filling them with his Holy Spirit and they go defeat an impossible enemy. You see God taking his prophet, filling them with his Holy Spirit and and he preaches God's message to his people even under the threat of persecution and death. You see God taking one of Jesus' disciples, filling him with his Holy Spirit and he preaches the gospel and thousands of people get saved. They do things being filled with the Holy Spirit that they otherwise wouldn't have done on their own or couldn't have done on their own. What's another similarity? Another similarity is that to be filled or to get drunk, you have to have a lot of it. You have to have a lot of it. Can you get drunk by just taking a sip? No. All of us, we have different alcohol tolerances, but nobody's going to get drunk just by taking a sip. And it's really not about how much alcohol you have. It's really about how much the alcohol has you, right? 
It's not really about how much alcohol you have. It's about how much the alcohol has you. So you get drunk when you drink alcohol until the alcohol has you. When the alcohol has you, that's when you're drunk. It's the same way with being filled with the Holy Spirit. You're not going to be filled with the Holy Spirit by just taking sips of the Holy Spirit here and there. You're not going to be filled with the Holy Spirit by just praying here and there, by just depending on him here and there, by listening to him just here and there. But it's when you pray until. It's when you depend on him until. It's when you listen to him until you're filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, some of you are asking, I thought we got filled with the Holy Spirit at the moment of our salvation. Why is Paul telling us to be filled again if we're already filled? He's saying there's a difference. There's a difference. You have been given the Holy Spirit at the moment of your salvation. You have the Holy Spirit, but now the Holy Spirit has to have you. There's a difference. You have the Holy Spirit, but now the Holy Spirit has to have you. He's got to get a hold of your entire life. It's not just about you having the Holy Spirit. It's about the Holy Spirit having you. That's being filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, let's talk about some dissimilarities. How is being drunk on wine different from being filled with the Spirit? Well, in countless ways. (laughs) Well, let's talk about two. First, you're filled with a person, not a substance. Okay? That seems like a simple difference, but it makes all the difference in the world. You're filled with a person, not a substance. I remember when I first met my wife, Angela, in college, she went from being a neighbor that I would just see every now and again to being a friend. And she went from being a friend to being my closest friend, and then I started liking her. And it sounds weird for me to say this, because you know we don't really speak like this as, as Americans, but but I became filled with her. I became filled with her. I started taking notice of her class schedule. Um, I started being influenced by her. I started being changed by her. Um, I I, I was an avid, I need absolutely silence, library studier, but I changed into being a Barnes & Noble studier because that's where she studied. (laughs) I I just wanted to be where she was. And I know all that makes me sound like a creeper, that's okay, because that's what I was doing. I was creeping. <laughs> but it worked. Right? She's my wife, we have four kids. That's, that's, it's not a prescription, by the way, guys. Some of you need to stop creeping. <laughs> she don't like you. Stop. Leave her alone. <laughs> um, and so I was filled with her. I, I was being changed and influenced by her. And I knew I was being changed, but I liked it. And in countless ways, she's changed me to be a better person, to be a better man. And what Paul is saying is that being filled with the person of the Holy Spirit is something like that. It's something like that. It's not having some one-time spiritual, emotional kind of experience, but it's being wrapped up in an ongoing love relationship with a person. That's what it is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's being wrapped up in an ongoing Love relationship with a person, with a person. That changes everything. Another major difference is in the way that drunkenness and being filled with the Spirit helps you deal with difficulties in life. Now, they both help you deal with difficulties in life, just in different ways. Well, how different? 
Let me ask you a question. Why do you think people get drunk? Why do you think people get drunk? I think we could boil it down to this. I think we could boil it down to, I think people get drunk because there's just something in their life that they just can't face. They just, they just, just can't face. Whether it's a sickness, whether it's a loss of a job, whether it's marital issues, whether it's the fear of not knowing what to do with their life, or whether it's just plain old boredom. Uh, the list can go on and on, but I think it boils down to people get drunk because there's just something in life that they just can't face. And so how does alcohol help you face those problems? Well, you can look up what alcohol is on the internet or in a a pharmacology book, and it will tell you that it's a depressant, that it's a depressant, not a stimulant, it's a depressant. And so alcohol helps you face the problems in your life by depressing and diminishing your awareness of reality, by making you see less and less of it, by letting you think less and less of it until you could forget it, right? That's how it helps you. And it's not just alcohol, by the way. Maybe drinking is not your thing. Maybe getting drunk is not the way that you escape reality. But maybe Netflix is. Maybe food is. Maybe pornography or some other habitual sin is, right? What Paul is pointing us to is really anything that we use to self-medicate. Anything else we use to self-medicate, get us through our day, something that we fill ourselves up with instead of God, something else that will get us excited, something else that we can look forward to, something rather than God to help us deal with the realities of this life. For me, it's food. It's food. I use food to escape reality three times a day, sometimes four or five times a day. Um, it's, it's 10.30 a.m., and what I'm doing is I'm looking at Yelp, looking at the list of restaurants I've bookmarked, wondering what perfect restaurant, what perfect meal I could have for that day so I could get through my day, okay? And so I did something this week. I decided to cut carbs and sugars from my diet this week because that's actually what the things that I'm looking forward to, carbs and sugar, right? So I decided to cut it. Now, for some of you Austinites, hippie, healthy people, I know that doesn't sound like a big deal, but... For an Asian man, not to eat rice for a whole week, that's a big deal. Why are you laughing? Um, and so I'll be honest with you, life was a dull gray this week. It was a dull gray. People, people would ask me, hey, Holly, where do you want to go for lunch? And I'd say, I don't know, Whole Foods, I guess. You know. what, what I saw was that I was so dependent on eating delicious meals just to get through my day. It helped me escape reality rather than being dependent on the Holy Spirit, rather than being filled with the Holy Spirit. But how does the Spirit help you face the realities of this life? Not by diminishing your ability to see like alcohol, but by increasing it, by increasing it. Not by narrowing your field of vision, but by expanding it. We see this in 2 Kings chapter 6. When Elisha the prophet is in Dothan with his servant, and the king of Syria sends a massive army of horses and chariots to go and capture him. And his servant wakes up in the morning, sees this army, wakes up Elisha in a panic. Okay, let's look at the text. 2 Kings 6, 15 through 17. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, do not be afraid, for those who are with us 
are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And so church, it's not that the problems you're facing aren't real. They're real. It's not that the problems you're facing aren't threatening. It's not that it's not serious, okay? It's the fact that there's something else. There's something else that you're not seeing. And so how does Elisha help this young man, his servant, to be able to face this great army? He doesn't say, hey, let's go back in the tent and get drunk so we can forget about it. He says, God, will you open his eyes? Will you open his eyes to be able to see the unseen? And that's what the Holy Spirit does. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He helps us face the problems of the army, of the horses and chariots that stand against us by opening up our eyes to see the massive greater army of horses and chariots of fire that stand for us. He opens your eyes. He opens your eyes. That's being filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what it means. Now let's look at the last question. How can we be filled with the Holy Spirit? How can we do it? Let's look at the verses again and also some following verses. Verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And then starting in verse 19, he's going to point us to the fruit of being filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the fruit. It's worship, right? Now there's another passage in the Bible that's almost identical to this one. It's Colossians 3.16. And in Colossians 3, we're going to see the key. We're going to see the answer to the how, okay? Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And so we have two passages here. They're almost identical. What's the only difference? The only difference is that Ephesians chapter 5 tells us to be filled with the Holy Spirit and all these things will happen. And Colossians chapter 3 tells us, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly and all these things will happen. But the same thing will happen, right? And so how do you be filled with the Holy Spirit? You be filled with the Holy Spirit by letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That's the how. That's the how. Are you surprised by that answer? Are you surprised by that answer? How do you be filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, by... Studying and obeying God's word. Are you surprised by that answer? To be filled with the spirit, it's not some strange thing. It's not a silly or crazy kind of thing. There are charismatic movements that have moved so far away from the biblical teaching of who the Holy Spirit is and what the Holy Spirit does, right? You have churches gathering. You have people running up and down the aisle barking, and they call that being filled with the Holy Spirit. You have people laughing uncontrollably, and they call that holy laughter. You have pastors and preachers slaying people in the Holy Spirit. All of that is just silliness at best, and it's demonic at worst. Silliness at best and demonic at worst. The Holy Spirit does not want you to pass out. 
The Holy Spirit does not want you to pass out. He wants you to be awake. He wants you to be sober. He wants you to be looking steadfastly in God's word, studying, memorizing, contemplating. He wants you living and fighting against sins, awake, obeying God's word, right? Awake, sober. That's why Paul says in verse 14, awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. The Holy Spirit doesn't want you to pass out. He wants you to be awake and sober. Now, some of you, I know you're really mad at me right now really mad at me but it's okay it's okay because I just really 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 want you to know who he really is what he really does not some counterfeit weird version of the Holy Spirit but who he really is well how do we know who he really is Jesus said when the Holy Spirit comes he will teach you and remind you of all that Jesus taught That's his primary role, guys. When the Holy Spirit comes, he will teach you and remind you of all that Jesus taught. The Holy Spirit's primary role is to point us to Jesus, okay? And he says in doing so, he's going to produce the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are the marks of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Bob already told us how we can tell. Okay? And so it's not just having some heightened spiritual, emotional experience. If you go through some experience, right, and you don't see that you're any more kind afterwards, you have some emotional, spiritually heightened experience, and you don't see that you're any more loving or gentle afterwards, if you don't see that you're any more faithful afterwards, well, it wasn't the Holy Spirit. It wasn't the Holy Spirit. If you have some emotionally, spiritually heightened experience, but then you're not reminded of what Jesus taught, if you're not ultimately pointed to the person of Jesus, I don't know what happened to you. I just know it wasn't the Holy Spirit. That's not what he does. Being filled with the Spirit is the daily act of going to God's word having it dwell in you richly. You get filled by the Holy Spirit in the path of living in obedience. You get him in the path of going to God's word and praying in the Holy Spirit. God, show me how to obey this. Give me the power to obey this. You get him in the path of memorizing scripture and and just contemplating it until you come under such influence over it that you can't imagine not obeying it. That's how you get him. You get him in the pathway of letting the word of Christ examine you, showing showing you your sins and repenting of those sins. That's how you get him. I I wish it was easier, but it's not. But the good news is that as you are being filled with the Holy Spirit, because you're trying to obey more, what happens? What happens? Well, because you are filled with the Holy Spirit, you'll be able to obey more. Right? And because you're obeying more, what will happen? The Holy Spirit will fill you more. And because you're filled with more of the Holy Spirit, then what will happen? You'll be able to obey more. And so you see this cycle? It's called sanctification. It's called sanctification. And you guys are experiencing it every day of your life if you are in Christ. God's Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you and changing you from the inside out. Right? We look at the scriptures, Ephesians 4 through 6. We look at all of it and we think to ourselves, God, how in the world am I going to be able to obey? How in the world am I going to be able to live a life of obedience and fighting? I I can't do it, God. God knows. That's why he gave you the Holy Spirit, to dwell inside of you, 
What does Jesus call the Holy Spirit? He calls him the helper, right? We need help. When it comes to living a life of obedience, we need help. You can't fight sin on your own. The sin that's been plaguing you all your life, you're so determined to fight it, you can't fight it on your own. That's why you have the Holy Spirit. Living a life of obedience for the rest of your life, living in obedience to all the things that God's commanded you to do, you can't do it on your own, but you're not alone. You're not alone. You have God's Holy Spirit. When it comes to the person of God the Father, you have him, right? But in a sense, you don't because we're not there yet. We're not home yet. When it comes to Jesus, in a sense, you have him, but in a sense, you don't because we're still waiting for him to return. But when it comes to the Holy Spirit, you have all of him. You have the fullness of him in you right now. Right now, you're not alone. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for coming near. Thank you for coming near to us, Lord. We were so far away from you because of our rejection, because of our sinfulness, because of your holiness, but you moved heaven and earth to send us your son. And your son went to the cross and died a horrific death, credited us with all of his righteousness and made us a holy people so that The culminating work of it all is that you, God, could send your very Holy Spirit to dwell inside of your people so that you could prove to us that you are not a God who dwells far off, so that you could prove to us that you are not even a God who has come to dwell among, but that you are a God who has to come and to dwell in the very hearts of your people. Thank you for not leaving us alone. Thank you for the promise of never leaving us or forsaking us. By the power of your Holy Spirit, God, let us be a people that are victorious over sins, living in obedience to all that you command. In Jesus' name we pray.